Hello, this is Alan W. Middleton, Certified Public Accountant, and welcome to The Quarterman. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, file, and audit an issue for my comic book collection, which I will often select based on the calendar. Any book for my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it before sales tax. Did 25 cents fully pay off the tax bill? Was there a refund to 25 cents? Or are taxes still owed? Stay tuned and find out. For this 117th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Flash 52 from DC Comics, cover dated July 1991. But first, a little feedback. We covered Captain Victory last episode, and I learned that he was a very popular character. Manuel Carmona from Truthful Comics reported that he was currently listening to Professor Allen's excellent Quarterbin podcast and what better books to podcast about than King Kirby books. Thank you, Manuel. Manuel was also one of the people who replied with excitement to the preview post that that episode was a few days away. Kyle Benning and Michael Lane were also looking forward. Michael, of course, is the man behind the Kirby cast, which after a brief hiatus just recently released its fourth episode. Kyle Benning's comment was, Yes! I love this series! Luke Giaconetti reported that he was excited to listen. Kirby is the king. Dr. Ange proprietor of the award-winning Supergirl blog comic box commentary and occasional emergency room surgeon, posted that this was the perfect episode for him, as he had the first nine issues of this. The doc also pointed out that the later Dynamite version from the Kirby Genesis line, written by Sterling Gates, was also worth seeking out, and was actually his introduction to the character. A couple of years later, I ran across a nice brick in the buck box and picked them all up. As you say, Professor, this is Kirby at his craziest. If anyone needs an editor, it's late in the game, Kirby. There is a plot in this series, but it sometimes gets lost in the insanity. Still worth reading and looking at, but it is madness. Loved hearing your take and definitely worth a quarter, if not four times that. You know, I usually don't put up with such crazy talk on my podcast, but it is hard to argue with that. And we heard from Laurel at Mountain Flower One. Dear Professor Allen, my first exposure to Captain Victory was the 2011 Kirby Genesis series from Dynamite. It was written by Kurt Busiak with Alex Ross, who also did the panel layouts with finished art by Jackson Herbert. Ross also painted a couple characters anytime they appeared in the interior of the comics which made them, obviously, really stand out. It was a visual feast with all kinds of Kirby's published characters like Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, as well as characters he designed but never used. Lightning Lady does appear as one of the many villains in the story, as you can imagine with such a huge number of Kirby creations involved. It was one crazy mashup by the final issue, but also a lot of fun. Captain Victory was given a miniseries out of the event by Sterling Gates. This is the series that Dr. Ange mentioned. And artist 
Wagner Reese, which I enjoyed as well. It was shaping up to be a grand space opera, but unfortunately was cancelled after issue six. Either the writer didn't have enough warning it was ending, or he chose not to change his scripts, because the series left a large number of loose ends. I'm interested in the original Captain Victory stories, like the ones you covered this episode, to find out how closely the 2011 effort portrayed the characters and plots as Kirby intended. To that end, I'm hoping you find some more in the quarter bins and report back to us one day soon. Best wishes, Laurel. Great to hear from you, Laurel. Thanks for the feedback. Likes and retweets and shares for that last episode came from many of the fine folks we've mentioned before, and also Bill Baer, Kyle Benning, Robert Ludwig, Al Sedano, Comics Lost in Time, Old School Ross, Patrick Delmore of the Star Trek podcast Next Generation's First Generation, Dr. G, the Man of Nerdology, Chris Willette from Bizarre Manor, Scott Rowland, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes, The Long Box Crusade, and Clinton from Coffee and Comics. Thank you for all of that. Very much appreciated. All right, let's get to today's issue. Flash, number 52, at a cover price of $1. Meaning I acquired this comic at a very nice 75% discount off that list price. The cover of Flash 52 by Greg LaRock and Jose Marzan Jr. shows three scary, monster-like characters surrounding Flash with a female, you know, fire-bursting type of character also flying around them. But he's not worried, because he's holding a badge. Freeze! I'm with the IRS. The story, Death and Taxes, was written by William Messner Loeb's and drawn by the aforementioned Greg LaRock and Jose Marzan Jr. We begin in Washington, D.C., the capital of the free world, the center point of man's upward striving for liberty and fairness, and also the home of the IRS. And from behind the office door of Lauren Digby, special agent in the Collection Enforcement Division, we hear, There's nothing to worry about, Mr. West. Although you owe the government a substantial amount of money without the slightest hope of ever paying it back. Then we see this balding, bespectacled, bow-tie-wearing IRS agent in question, who lets Mr. West know that the IRS is willing to be accommodating. After all, an easy and equitable way of funding the government is essential to a democracy, which is exactly what a mid-level IRS flunky would say. Wally West, on the other side of the desk, flanked by lawyers, admits that he owes the money, and mentions that one of his lawyers mentioned that maybe he could work it off. Well, the IRS would be foolish not to make use of Wally's extraordinary powers. Many wealthy men can avoid paying taxes, leaving working-class Americans with higher taxes. Now, I'm going to interrupt this issue a couple of times to discuss the tax policy and other issues that are raised. And I don't think it exactly works the way that this IRS fella claims. Tax rates for the middle class do not adjust upward every time a rich fella evades taxes. 
I mean, I guess maybe in theory, maybe, but I'm going to pass this off as the IRS agent himself doing a little virtue signaling to get Wally on his side. Anyway, the agent continues holding up a photo. Take, for example, this man, Miles Anton Kramer. Wally recognizes him from the savings and loan crisis. He began with a small occult bookstore, of all things. Now he has gigantic quantities of money hidden in foreign banks, and yesterday he vanished. We need someone who can find him quickly, who he can't outrun. The agent hands Wally a contract and a badge. Welcome to the IRS, Mr. West. At a lunch meeting with his lawyers shortly thereafter, Wally considers the offer. Here we get a little backstory about Wally having some money coming to him eventually, but it is being held up, sort of legal stuff like that. The lawyers are also out of cash, and Wally is too, so he decides to look for Kramer. And he'll start that process by walking his dog. Shortly thereafter, Wally runs into a large urban park, holding his dog in his arms. As the dog runs around the park, Wally sits next to an older lady on a bench. They are joined by a man in sunglasses and a dark suit. Plains that Wally is hard to keep up with. Wally wonders if the mob has a mole inside the IRS. But the man replies that, hey, just because they're mob, they are just businessmen anyway. And there is one thing the mob has in common with the IRS, is that they're also owed a lot of money by Kramer. And it could work out to Wally's advantage by about $2 million if Wally were to make sure that Kramer, say, died after he finds him. Wally turns down the money, the mob man leaves, and after a few seconds, the lady on the bench speaks up. It's none of my business, young man, but I would have taken the cash. As he leaves the park, another car pulls up to him, and Wally assumes it's more mob thugs. No, no, the two guys in the car say. We're with you. Treasury, get in. At this point, I could compare and contrast the IRS and the mob. Mostly compare, as there really isn't a lot to contrast. Both organizations want as much of your money as possible, and are not necessarily known for their mercy and compassion in dealing with folks who do owe them money. Wally and the dog get in the car, and they head for Kramer's mansion, on the outskirts of town. He hasn't been there for a week, but Wally says it doesn't matter. Get me there, and I'll find him. The driver and the other guy are Wally's helpers on the case, and they have as much incentive to find Kramer as he does. One of them was an accountant, and the other a lawyer. We both ended up with huge tax bills. I've got five years left to serve out. Because, you know, federal government. And indentured servitude. Wally messes around with a guy outside Kramer's front gate, and maybe the butler, just maybe sort of his uh, home manager. Uh, but he heads past him into the mansion. The, the butler guy, or whoever, named Tilson, calls Mr. Kramer and reports that Flash is after him. And he's talking crazy. After the call... Flash finds the notes that Tilson was using with the phone number and the address of where Kramer currently is, which is a penthouse suite back in the city, right under our noses. 
by the time Kramer and his buddies have realized that they have to move, and move quickly, and have started figuring out where to move to, Flash arrives at the penthouse. Look, everybody, chill. Okay, I ran up the side of the building. I'm not here to give you grief. You just have to pay your taxes. He is thought-bubbling at the same time. Actually, I'm starting to feel sorry for this guy. You miss a couple of payments, build up some debt, and everybody comes down on you. You know, I guess that does sound a lot like the mob also. And this is where the story turns from a small human interest comic book to an actual full-blown superhero adventure comic book. You remember, this Kramer fella started out his life running a small occult bookstore. They didn't mention the name of the store, but I'm pretty sure it's Chekhov's Occult Bookshop. Because one of Kramer's companions, a super hot, big-haired redhead in a teeny tiny bikini, interrupts Wally's discussion of payment plans. The master named me Piranus when he gave me this form. Dost thou know why, mortal? Because I burn with living hellfire. In the corner of the room, Kramer himself turns into a winged demon thing and tells the others to assume their power forms. Now! Using his arms to create a whirlwind, Flash extinguishes the flames of the fire girl. He then turns to a blue being, totally covered with spikes. This fella is Dr. Payne. Every inch of me a weapon. Taste the sweet, ripping pleasure of my crystals. And the mummy-wrapped being, Grunt, grabs him with the strength of pure evil. Flash has taken enough from these people. You want power? I'll give you power and enough vibrations to send you back to hell. He grabs the wrappings from Pagrunt to extinguish the fire girl's flames and wrap up Dr. Payne, and they all eventually crash through the big window. And as they are falling from the penthouse, it occurs to Flash that, all things considered, I should have let the mob find him. The demon restores strength to his minions, and Flash wonders out loud if the hospital bills will be deductible on next year's returns. I'm going to interrupt the recap now, here close to the end of the story, to answer Wally's question, and discuss the deductibility of health and medical payments. The way this works is that your out-of-pocket costs, the actual amounts you pay for medical and dental expenses, may be deductible on your individual 1040 form under certain circumstances. First, the expenses have to be substantial, and the current threshold for determining that is that they have to be above 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. As an example, let's say that Wally's adjusted gross income is $80,000. 7.5% of that is $6,000. So that's the threshold, $6,000, above which items are deductible. So if Wally's hospital bills, after any insurance that he has through the JLA or any other group policy, or now as an employee of the IRS, his out-of-pocket costs, again, not the total bill, but what he pays, if that is, say, $7,000, then the amount above the threshold of 6000 is deductible, meaning that 1000 
would be deductible. Let's walk through the math again quickly. $80,000 adjusted gross income. 7.5% of that is 6000 the threshold for medical deductions. 7000 actual out-of-pocket costs minus the 6000 threshold equals a $1,000 tax deduction. Now, there is one additional complicating feature here because taxes. The medical and dental expense deduction is an itemized deduction, meaning that you only get the specific deduction, the specific benefit of it, if your total itemized deductions are greater than a standard deduction. In other words, everybody gets to deduct a standard amount off their taxes. For the 2017 tax year, a single person like Wally gets to automatically deduct $6,350 from their taxes. In other words, that amount, $6,350, is, is tax-free in, in, in terms of income taxes. So if the combination of those itemized deductions, which are state income taxes, the medical expenses above the 7.5% threshold, charitable contributions, mortgage interest, and the other categories of itemized deductions, although those are the main ones. If that amount is less than 6350, Wally would nonetheless be allowed to deduct 6350. For the most part, most often, single people like Wally don't have enough charitable contributions and sales tax to add up to that standard deduction. For married couples, the amount doubles to 12,700 and is thus even harder to reach especially without the mortgage interest deduction. In other words, renters very rarely qualify for the itemized deductions. So on one hand, it's bad, because if Wally is renting, he might not have enough itemized deductions to use these hospitalization fees as deductions. Again, deductions reduce the amount upon which you are taxed, therefore, in an indirect way, reduce the amount of taxes you pay. But on the other hand, he gets $6,350 of tax-free income, and he doesn't have to keep track of any deductions. And when he marries Linda, it doubles. And since none of you are in a strict technical sense actual students of mine, there will not be a quiz on any of this. But to answer the question that Wally asked before this little lecture, which was, I wonder if I'll be able to deduct my hospital bills on my taxes. The answer is as is the answer to almost every tax-related question you can think of, it depends. By the way, the most recent tax bill signed in early 2018 by President Trump, that 6350 amount nearly doubles to 12000 This is probably the biggest advantage, along with lowering the tax bracket to 10% from 15% for the first amount of taxable income that will benefit uh, working class, young professionals, and anyone else not paying a home mortgage. Again, the drawback is that you give money to church or a charity or if medical expenses above that threshold, you won't get additional benefit of that. The advantage is that very few people who don't have the mortgage deduction or give a full tie to their church plus some wouldn't benefit anyway because of that first $12,000 of tax-free income, again, from U.S. income taxes, that you can earn next. Again, no quiz. But back to the comic book. 
Now, if you remember, we are at a very dramatic moment in the course of this story with Wally and these demon-spawned monsters having just fallen out of a big, large penthouse window. And at that cliffhanger, I think it's time to take a break. Play a promo, and when we come back, we'll finish the synopsis and talk about the issue. It's J.L. May We're covering the Silver Age This J.L. May A comic event from Mark Wade We're crossovering a podcast There's 12 of us involved Get it in your ear holes This J.L. We'll tell you all All about the Silver Age It's not great But it's okay We really have to warn you It has a controversial one where Mark Miller wrote the lead. But it also has some good stuff. style hage metal man. Challenges of the unknown. Green Lantern Flash Patrol of Doom. The seven soldiers of victory are in there too. The annual JLMA event is upon us once more. In 2018, we're reading The Silver Age from 2001. The journey begins in the podcast Justice's First Dawn and continues in the shows Relatively Geeky, Coffee and Comics, Supermates, Waiting for Doom, Idlehead of Diablo, The Longbox Crusade, The Lantern Cast, Batgirl to Oracle, Comic Reflections, Cosmic Treadmill, The Fire and Water Podcast. Do you know it's JLMA? Do you know it's J.L.M.A.L.? It all begins this May. When last we were talking about the story, Wally, a demon, and three demon-empowered bodyguards had fallen out of a high-rise apartment building. The demon thing doesn't think Wally is respecting him enough. You come after me as though I were a common criminal. Do you know with whom you are dealing? Must I tell you with whom you are dealing? Now, as I demonstrated earlier, I am a finance and business professor, not an English professor. But if anyone wants to confirm that the whom's 
and those two prior sentences were correct, let me know. Again, that was, do you know with whom you are dealing? Must I tell you with whom you are dealing? And then, in two pretty epic pages, he does tell Wally whom, with whom he is whom dealing with whom. You know, piercing the barriers between the world and the infernal regions, possessing the body of one of the demon lords, drawing forth three elemental spirits, and eventually, a little thing we like to call mastering hell itself. And then, having bound these creatures, I changed them, gave them the semblance of mortality, so that they might join me on earth and use their great powers to bring me a fortune through stock manipulation <laughs> and dominating the financial capitals forever. Now, wait a second, Flash asks. You mean you did all this just to rig the stock market? He just destroys the building, and when he does so, the entire city begins to melt. And the demon guy says he needs to catch the Flash. But Flash points out that he's faster, and that the guy is going to have to chase him through the city forever. What kind of life is that? I can't reach you. I can't beat you. And you won't give up? Flash explains that all he promised to do was collect these taxes. The truth of that sinking in, the demon turns back into Kramer, and he hands Flash a bank book that I don't want to think about where he was storing it when he was in his demon form, but he says, take this, it's from my Swiss bank, uh, have them deduct the taxes from here. It will be easier to be dragged into court and subvert the legal system from within than to fight you any longer. See? There you go! Another civics lesson! This may be our most educational episode ever. And then, a mustachioed white guy in a suit barrels up. Now just wait a minute. I'm the mayor of this city, and it's in ruins. No matter what this man has done, you can't just let him... Flash turns on the mayor and flashes his IRS badge. Sure I can. I'm with the federal government. We can do anything. The mayor is stunned, shocked, and scared. The Internal Revenue Service? Right, Wally answers. Send them the bill. The end. Actually, in terms of discussion, I do want to start at the end bit, because it does kind of stick out to me. I lived in suburban Maryland growing up. The Washington Post was the hometown newspaper. And so I've just sort of become accustomed to paying attention to the city government of Washington. And among the little bit that I know about this is that the city has not had a Caucasian mayor since the governmental structure was reorganized in the mid-1960s, and they actually started having mayors for the first time. So whatever the reason here, maybe the artist just didn't know that and was told to draw a mayor, and this is his standard default model of a comic book mayor. He is overweight, he's old, he's white, he has a big mustache. I can understand that. Or maybe they were being a bit sensitive, seeing as the mayor is a bit of a buffoon in this issue. He does get his comeuppance, so maybe 
standard white male blowhard was the best specific character type for that. Or again, to be fair, Marion Barry had recently relocated from the mayor's office in Washington to a prison cell. So again, maybe generic Caucasian was the, the smartest move to not be specifically identifying a particular mayor of Washington. I don't know, but I admit that it did bump me a little bit. And let me say this specifically to Nathaniel Wayne. Back away slowly from the email machine. I know what you're going to say, and I totally agree. It's just me. The story itself was insane, and I pretty much mean that in the good way. Personally, based on my experience as a tax preparer, the conflation of the IRS to the mob, and then from the IRS to a demoniac, I kind of get that. I would put those two concepts together too. That is why the place is sometimes called the Infernal Revenue Service. Actually, as much as I've mocked the IRS during this episode in terms of their reputation for uh, less than satisfactory customer service, let's say, but in terms of the specifics of the laws, such as that 7.5% threshold for medical expenses and itemized deductions versus standard deductions, those laws exist as a result of the House and Senate passing bills that presidents have signed. So that is all about politics and parties and special interests and lobbyists and and all that. The IRS's job is just to collect taxes and enforce the laws. But the laws and the procedures that they are enforcing, those come directly from the political process of government, not from the administrative process. Okay, again, back to the comic. These days, you just don't get great one-off stories. And this is a pretty great one-off story. It has a beginning. It has a middle. And a pretty great ending. It had action. It had humor. It had public policy. It had government flunkies. It had demons. What more could you ask for? I suppose technically you could ask for compelling villains. And this one doesn't necessarily have anyone iconic like that. Uh, You know, that's true enough. They are a little bit throwaway. They're just to have people for Flash to beat up on his way to facing the big boss. But the guy who turns into a living weapon, Mr. Payne, not a bad gimmick. I admit that I was not expecting the story to take a turn towards the demonic, but like I said, we're already brought in to the IRS, so it's kind of like the door was open for that. But back to the bit about humor. The bit with the lady on the bench, if I were you, I'd have taken the cash. That's pretty funny. And of course, the whole plot by the demon to gain power through wealth and stock market manipulation. That's pretty crazy. Of course. Maybe it's just crazy enough to work. The Verdict on Flash 52. This is one of the top standalone stories I've read in a long time. I had no idea what to expect from this. I just knew it a little bit about the book, sort of from reputation, like the... Do you remember that one time Wally West worked for the IRS sort of thing? But I had no concept for the details of the story. But certainly when I pulled it out of the cheap ends and saw the cover, I knew I had to cover it, and I knew I had to do so sometime, some year, in mid-April. So I had no, like I said, I had no concept for the details of the story, but I did enjoy it. Maybe it's my background. 
familiarity with the content in question. But again, I found this funny, pretty fast-paced, and all-around entertaining. And I have to say, I don't necessarily think of William Messner Loeb's as being a particularly funny writer. But there you go. He pulled it off here. Solid stuff all the way around, albeit a bit over the top. But I was fine with all of that. Totally fine with all of that. A definite quarter bin deal. That wraps up my coverage of Flash 52. Bringing episode 117 of the Quarter Bin Podcast to a close. On episode 118, we'll probably be looking at books from Free Comic Book Day, the official holiday of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. But that's based on sort of how things fall with the, with the dates and so on and the overall podcasting schedule over at Relatively Geeky. So if necessary, I may skip ahead to 119. And no, look, we're comic book people. We don't mind things being numerically out of order. We're pretty cool with that. So, episode 119, whenever we get to it, we'll continue our new number nine series of episodes with Marvel Comics Superheroes Magazine number two. So those are the next two episodes, Free Comic Book Day and Magazine number two. I just can't totally promise in which order those two will be released. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, your tax return, the IRS, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. And of course, I hope you had a wonderful tax day. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.